It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Helen Scales. I'm a marine biologist and writer. And I'm Shay Rhodes, a journalist and filmmaker. And we're back for a second season of Earth Unscrewed. Yes, sadly, our return means that we haven't managed to unscrew the planet just yet. Unfortunately, this beautiful world of ours is still very much under threat. In the last season, we met with awe-inspiring innovators who've dedicated their lives to making change. From the man who's scooping lumps of disgusting fat out of sewers to make into lovely, clean fuel. To the woman who brought grid connectivity to her community. In season two, we'll be learning about the changes we can make and championing new, sustainable projects that could fix the problems. And hopefully, unscrew the planet. And welcome to season two of Earth Unscrewed. It's good to be back, isn't it? It is great. It is great. Certainly very nice to see you. It's good to see you and to hear about all your research and your latest developments. Unfortunately, though, the Earth hasn't been unscrewed. We we were maybe hoping a bit much for one season, but it is good that we can come back and keep on doing this. Mm. It's wonderful. But, But while it may not be unscrewed, I think the screw is turning and the lid is slightly coming off. I've lost my analogy Are we there. screwing the lid on or off? I'm not sure. But either way... <laughs> yeah, we're unscrewing <laughs> Either way, the, the, screw is, the screw is turning uh, and we it are is. making progress. On. We are, we are. We are. What have you been up to since we last saw you? Um, not a huge amount. I did go to Brazil where I was focusing on President Bolsonaro and his allegedly homophobic policies. Um, a few months later, it became apparent that we may have done the wrong story. We really should well, have used the Amazon. There is a bit of an Amazonian story, isn't there now, mm. sadly? Well, I got a kind of first-hand look at sea level rise, actually. I went to Louisiana. It wasn't really there for the sea level rise, but it was unavoidable. Um, I didn't actually know that that's uh, one of the places in the world where sea level rise is rising the fastest. Really? Uh, by about a football pitch an hour, it seems. And it's partly climate change, but also partly subsidence because um, yeah. of the way that the river's been changed. The Mississippi is channelized, and so there's no sediments going back. But I just got this real sense. I was flying into New Orleans. I got this incredible sense of... The just the land almost just sliding down into the ocean, just looking right. at it from above. You could yeah. hardly tell which bits were ocean, which bits were land. Yeah. And and speaking to people there and being actually in a place outside the system of levees, which are supposed to protect from the floods yeah. and seeing what life is like. And I guess it was the closest I kind of looked at that front line of of climate change, yeah. kind of in the face, really. Totally. And it's it, when I look at the map, when I look at satellite images of the river, that's exactly what it, it looks like to me. And I keep on imagining that that cannot be the Mississippi River that the pilgrims first discovered. No, absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, hearing stories about North America's first climate change refugees coming from right there, you know, living on these bits of land, which are just no longer... Mm-hmm. going to support human life. And then there were some innovative things happening. Like in this world, this water world, right at the edge of Louisiana, I was hearing about a supermarket that isn't building a big store, but is on a boat. 
Oh. And goes up and down the bayous and visits different communities mm-hmm. to get them their food. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's that works. Humans adapt. Humans they adapt. Do. And uh, the only problem is that the earth can't as quickly. So we do need to look after it, don't we? And to kick off, I think what we need is some context. This year has been a record-breaking year, certainly in the UK. In July, we had the highest temperature ever recorded in this country, 38.7 degrees C. Then a week later, a dam nearly collapsed because of torrential rains, and we had images of the army desperately putting sandbags onto this dam. So if you ever had any doubt that climate change is a national security issue, I think those images would have cleared that up for you. And this is reflected all over the world. The Met Office is telling us that heat waves are now 30 times more likely because of the climate crisis. The soaring global temperatures are causing sea levels to rise at the fastest rate in 3,000 years. On average now, we're on three millimetres per year. And with all those rising seawaters, more and more land is disappearing. In the Pacific, at least eight islands have already been swallowed up by the sea in the last century. And it's not just the sea that's eating away at our land, we are too. According to research carried out by the World Resources Institute, it's estimated that in 2018, the equivalent of 30 football pitches disappeared from the tropical rainforest every minute. And worse than that, this year we've seen wildfires rip through California and the Amazon, as we just said, at an astonishing rate. And with fewer and fewer trees to soak up the carbon dioxide, in March 2019, the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reached a record high that hasn't been seen in the last three million years. God, it's so depressing. It really is. Those numbers and figures and temperatures, it's all just coming together. But the point I'm trying to get to is that all of this affects more than just the planet. Those extreme weather events are having a drastic impact on people's daily lives. Mm. Access to food, clean water, shelter, everything we need, the basic needs for life. And we're seeing a rise in social unrest, riots. It all kind of makes sense, though, because I think what people are waking up to is this idea that healthy societies and a healthy environment are not two separate things. If you don't have a healthy environment, then then communities and societies can't thrive either. Well, thankfully, this is the point where we smoothly segue into some good news. Some people in the science community noticed this pattern and have come up with a solution. And we're joined down the line by one of them today. Welcome, Johan Rockström. Hello, welcome to Earth Unscrewed. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about what you do? Yes, hello there. My name is Johan Rockström. I'm a professor in Earth System Science at the University of Potsdam, and I'm the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research here in Germany. So I'm a scientist. And in my little write-up here, it says that you're a strategist on how resilience can be built into land regions. What is resilience? Resilience is um, really important. It is the capacity, you know, of us humans or ecosystems or planet as a whole to deal with shocks and stresses without irreversibly changing shape or form to become something else than it was from the very beginning. So an example is how much drought and forest fires and global warming can the Amazon rainforest really cope with how much resilience does the rainforest have 
before it irreversibly crosses a tipping point and becomes a savanna to coral reefs that can be pushed across the tipping point and irreversibly become a collapsed, murky, soft algae system. And all of this is determined by the resilience, by the capacity of the system to absorb and, and deal with shocks. Mm. And for us humans, we can think of it as, as a form of bank account. You know, if you lose your job tomorrow, you go through a deep crisis. But of course, your resilience is if you have some alternative income sources, you may have some savings, you may have some friends, you may have different ways of dealing with a crisis. And the more diverse, basically, your portfolio is, the more resilient you are. And same goes for nature. With more biodiversity, you're more resilient. And same goes for us humans. With more sources of uh, capability of dealing with different changes, the stronger we are. So that, that's resilience. A major focus of your work is to take uh, a planetary view of what we're doing to the world and its moving parts by defining boundaries, which we may or may not have already crossed. I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so there's the planetary boundary framework really emerges from all the science we have, and it's particularly the risk of tipping points and that we've now reached the new geological epoch that we define as the Anthropocene, that we're putting pressures on the whole planet. We are now in the driving seat of change on planet Earth. So, of course, from those insights of all the pressures we're putting on the planet and risk of tipping points raises two questions. I mean, question one is, what are the systems that determines the ability of the planet to remain in a, in a state that can support humanity? And can we, for all these systems, define scientifically boundaries within which we have a, a safe operating space where we remain in a desired state, but beyond which where we are at risk of triggering tipping points that could irreversibly take us away from that desired state. And that gives us the planetary boundaries. I'm wondering how governments and people respond when you tell them this kind of thing. I'm, I'm aware that when this podcast goes out, you'll have just spoken at the UN 2019 Climate Action Summit. What do you think is going to come from that? How are people mm. going to respond? Yeah, I would argue that the world at large increasingly understands, but too slowly, but that it is sinking in in a quite positive way. I mean, the first is that it's sinking in that, yes, the planet is warming, and it's warming in a, in, a, in a worryingly fast pace. The second thing that has sunk in is that that translates to extreme events. It's getting uh, painfully clear that heat waves, floods, reinforced hurricanes, really tough extreme events are occurring, change is occurring. Then you have the third level of understanding, which is what, what we have been discussing now, which is what are the risks that we push on buttons and trigger big changes that would commit all future generations to different life support systems on Earth? I would argue that that is also increasingly taken seriously in policy and in business, but not in, in a wide enough way. And, and one of the challenges, to just throw that out to you, is that we don't see enough understanding in the economics community of incorporating large risks of disastrous outcomes of global warming, even at, at low temperatures like one and a half and two degrees Celsius warming, and what implications that would have on the global economy. So all of this is 
a huge perspective on the planet and what we're doing to it. And you're taking this incredibly powerful, top-level perspective on all of this. And I think I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on a certain aspect of this, which I feel has really changed in the last couple of years, which is that more and more members of the public are, are really getting aware and involved in these issues. How do you think that fits into all of this, the sort of the people and, and what they're demanding? Does it does it help with those high-level discussions that are going on at governmental levels and so on? Do you see a change in that mm. perspective? Yes, I, I think it's, um, it's a very important movement, to be honest. The rising of the youth movement and the Fridays for Future, from a scientific community perspective, I think we were essentially at a position we say, fantastic, how come you come so late? Because... <laughs> you know, we've been communicating this for 20 plus years and uh, we've seen the writing on the wall and it's been quite silent there at the, at the frontier of, of communicating the evidence on, on the risks we're taking that in the US, but also in Europe and in India and in Asia, the citizens at large, over 60% of citizens year after year, um, you know, express their concern for climate change their trust in climate science, and that they want climate action. So under this dichotomy and debate in, in media and in policy, there has been a gradual, very linear and persistent growth in understanding, in awareness, and nowhere is this so strong as among our millennials and particularly girls. I should say, though, something that I think is really important. One should never, ever load the full responsibility on individuals. We're talking about structural rapid changes of the world economy and of nation states. I mean, we're talking about phasing out fossil fuels and changing transport systems and the logic in business and how we construct and design buildings and society. And so, of course, one has to continue recognizing the fact that when I talk about planetary stewardship and governance and management at planetary scale, I don't do it only as a kind of a, having a helicopter view on things. I also do it because that's where the levers also need to change. I mean, we need to recognize that this is, you cannot have zero emissions. We have to, we know we're, remember, we need to cut emissions by half over the next decade. I mean, that's task number one, 50% reduction yeah. of emissions over the next 10 years to reach a fossil fuel-free world economy by 2050. So in 30 years' time, no more oil, coal, and gas in the world. Now, this requires bottom-up, absolutely. It's great with uh, movement and engagement and individual behavioral change and all these very, very strong signals. But we also need leadership from business and from policy from above, and both of these. I think... Um... Something that you said really triggered a, a memory for me then, because I remember that as a young 12, 13, 14, for me, the environment and, and environmental change was all about me. It was about the things that I needed to do. I needed to recycle more. I needed to take the train instead of the car. I needed to change my behavior. When I speak to my 15-year-old son, who's been out on all these climate marches, it's got nothing to do with him. It's all about governments. Other people need to be doing much bigger things than, than he can. And yet I'm still struck as a parent by my lack of ability to tell him what he should be doing, how he could potentially make things better. What would be your top five tips for us 
uh, as, as ordinary people? What should we be doing? This is why I personally feel so frustrated when people talk about climate depression. I think nobody should be depressed. Nobody should stand there and say, oh my God, things are going down the drain. I'm such a small individual. I cannot do anything. I get depressed. What I'd like to see is climate anger. I'd like to see a step up with some adrenaline and say, now is the time to make my voice heard, not get depressed. Because we are, again, living in societies that have been powered by fossil fuels. We are stuck in this dilemma and we need to, together as a community, move out of this. No single person can do it alone, of course, but together we can make a difference. So that's key to kind of step out of any sense of self-guilt and rather step up frustratingly and, and show some, yeah, some anger. And, and, and why am I saying anger? Because the scientific evidence shows we are facing potentially unacceptable risks, but also the evidence shows we have the solutions. So there is reason to be frustrated today, actually, because we could actually shut down coal in Europe over the next five years if we only wanted to do it, if we really, really wanted to do it. Look at the UK. Today, the only coal mine remaining is a museum. I mean, you, you can do it. These things can happen. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're due to give up on coal by 20, uh, next year, yeah, isn't that's it? that's right. year after. That's right. So mm. anyway, but to your, to your list of five, and you, Top you, you'll five. be a bit surprised of my... So I guess number one would be get angry. Yeah, that's right. Number one is get angry. Don't be depressed. My number two is share knowledge. Keep your ear on the ground. Follow the science. Talk about this have a buzz, have a momentum on this, be part of the movement and translate your anger to the new story. And the new story is, you know, I would call that the best untold story in town because not only are we facing disastrous risks, action on, let's say, saving the planet is shifting very rapidly from, from the old story, which was always about sacrifice, always about what are you willing to sacrifice to protect nature from us bad humans to now being the story of investing in the new pathway to a new modernity? You know, it's like it's the new Tesla story that where sustainability and decarbonization and the way to have long, healthy lives is to eat healthy diets, which also contributes to managing forest biodiversity and climate so you go from from depression to anger you keep sharing knowledge and then you step into the new narrative so there you have three and then not until coming to number four would i encourage people to stop using fossil fuels for all forms of electricity i mean that's the that's a no-brainer actually i mean if you're a teenager tell your parents to lift their phone and switch off all forms of provision of electricity from fossil fuels to now sign up to contracts for wind and solar. Anyone can do it in Europe today. It's one phone call away. And then number five is to really think through where, where we save our pensions and where we put our, our money and to try and contribute towards divestment, to see that every little stream of, of action where I have my money on my bank or if I have a pension fund, to just vote a bit more with our feet, both democratically in elections, but also in, in how we deal with our own resilience, that uh, you know, let's put our resilience 
to work towards a sustainable future instead of uh, passively contributing towards uh, status quo. Yeah, we could certainly keep on talking, I'm sure. And Johan, you've given us so much to think about. I'm certainly going to rush out of the studio today and try and keep the buzz up. Um, Definitely. (laughs) Lots and lots of things to think about. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us today on the programme. And thanks so much for just keeping us on a positive level. It's so hard to discuss the environment when you don't have people like yourself putting us into a positive space saying that we've got things we can do and we can fix this. So thank you. Bye. Thanks okay. for your time. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye there. I loved Johan because he was just so positive and he was way more direct than I'm used to scientists being. They're often a little bit like lawyers, like they kind of half say it but don't say it and they kind of go, I'm not telling you to do that but if that's what suits you, blah, blah. And it's all kind of percentage chances and lots of healthy debate among scientists and we just don't need that right now. Yeah, and I think it's refreshing and I think that's what I'm going to take away from this is that he can, on the one hand, be really staring down the face of this beast Mm. and really looking at a planetary scale at all of the things we're doing to all of these different boundaries, to the oceans, to the land, to the chemical cycles, all these different things, and to know more than most of us about what's going on. And yet to then say, oh, you know, we mustn't get depressed, we mustn't let this get to us as individuals, we have to stay angry and positive that we can make the change and that those changes are are there and we just have to push for them and and really re-pushing us back humanity back into the role of stewards yes you know we're not here for any particular reason but but while we are here Mm -hmm. it's our responsibility to look after all of this stuff Well, thanks for listening to Earth Unscrewed. If you've enjoyed listening to any of the themes from this episode... We've included some links in the description. If you want to learn more about the global climate strike, head over to globalclimatestrike.net. And to keep up with Johan and the events he's taking part in this month, find him on Twitter at jrockstrom. That's J-R-O-C-K-S-T-R-O-M. To follow the series, don't forget to subscribe... And please do remember to rate and review. It really helps us to get these incredible stories out there. Until next time, I'm Helen Scales. And I'm Shay Rhodes. Thanks for listening. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.